This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hey, hey, welcome again. Disability Law Show. Good to have you along for this show. You can always contribute. We love you. Adding to the program. Help at disabilityrights.ca and mydisabilityquestions.com. That is two ways to do that. And you want to call either uh, Savan, Savan Tamarkin, co-founding partner, Samfiru Tamarkin, LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in this country. You can reach out to Savan by phone, 1-855-821-5900. As well, same goes for Martin Willems, who's handing things on the West Coast for the firm as well. Same phone number, so do not hesitate to have a chat with these guys or their team members. Always willing to... Talk to you, 1-855-821-5900. Lots of emails, lots of questions, always pouring in. we got a bit of a backlog, Savannah, so I know you want to get to a, a bunch of these. But uh, what's first off the hop, pal? John, great to be with you here and with Martin. Again, uh, lots of activity over the last uh, week. Um, I want to start off by talking about something that is dear to my heart, uh, and I'm sure Martin Martin will identify with it. Um, not Not... Not all the lawyers out there will, will necessarily do what we do here, but I think it's important to talk about it, and that's about responsiveness, and it's about communication. And I'm talking in the context of a call I had this week with a lady uh, in Calgary, um, and this lady uh, was denied long-term disability about a year and a half ago. Uh, she, she's in her early 40s. Uh, she has a few young kids at home. Uh, she suffers from depression, anxiety, a bunch of different psychological issues. Uh, I, I looked at her letters. I looked at her denial letter. Um, I, you know, it's nonsense. The insurance company should not have denied her claim. It was clear cut. However, two years ago, that was before we started working in Alberta, before we opened our office there. Uh, of course, we have offices in Ontario, BC, and Alberta now. But that was before we were in Alberta. And so what happened was she had retained another law firm to help her with that LTD claim. And she contacted this lawyer. I'm familiar with that firm. Um, I haven't had much interaction with them, but I'm familiar with them. They say they do LTD. Anyways, she signs up with that firm, with that lawyer. And that lawyer um, uh, tells her, promises the world, says that we're going to do this and this and this. And so once she signs the retainer agreement, the contract uh, that confirms that that law firm is now representing her, that lawyer has essentially been AWOL. She has had difficulty reaching him. I think she's re- she said that she reached him maybe twice in the last year and a half. Uh, she hardly gets any calls back from the assistant, from anyone at that firm. That firm has several lawyers, it's not just him. And long story short, she has no idea what is the status of her claim, her legal claim against the insurance company. She has no idea what her lawyer has done on her claim. There's been no direction from the lawyer, from the office. And, you know, when she, as she was telling me this, I was just shaking my head. It was a phone call, but I was just shaking my head nonstop. I think I got whiplash, actually, by the time we finished the call. It, it was infuriating because here you have this lady. She's in a very uh, dire situation, a financial predicament. Uh, you know, her husband is also helping to care for her. He had to reduce his hours. So the family is struggling financially. Remember, this is like we're in COVID times. Yeah. So this is in addition to all the other stress that, we're, that she's dealing with. And this lawyer has been absolutely absent. Now, I can tell you this. Virtually every law society in Canada 
uh, has uh, rules uh, and, and, and guides about the conduct of lawyers, ethical conduct, uh, rules of professional practice that we as lawyers must adhere to. And in virtually every guideline, in every rule book, uh, under any law society in this country, you will find some provisions that talk about communications. And, and you will find provisions that talk about the obligations that a lawyer has towards their client. And these are significant obligations. You can't just sign up an individual and just go AWOL. Now, the problem here is that a year and a half has passed. And I can tell you, Martin will probably agree with me here. Had we been retained back then, I'm not saying she did anything, anything wrong by not coming to us because we were not practicing in Alberta at that time. But had we been involved, the chances are we would have already resolved this claim months and months ago. I have no idea what was done on her claim. My gut sense is that nothing was done on that claim, meaning I'm not even sure that a legal claim was started. And the reason why this is important is because there are time limitations that we have to start legal claims against insurance companies. It's two years. I mean, again, depending on the case, but generally speaking, it's two years from the date of first denial. And so you have to be very, very careful not to miss those time limitations. But even if he started a legal claim, what about the process of collecting the necessary documentation, potentially hiring experts, communicating with the defense lawyer, assuming there is one for the insurance company, assuming the, insur assuming the insurance company even knows that there is a legal claim going on? Nothing. Nothing's been communicated. And, and this poor lady and the poor family is left in the dark. And, and it infuriates me Infu because in our team, if we ever, ever get a call or an email from a client saying, this lawyer did not communicate with me, is not returning my phone calls, my email, etc., I can tell you we would have a very stern conversation with that lawyer. And, and frankly, it's probably two strikes and you're out, not three. It is absolutely unacceptable. The lawyer is not the client here. The client is the client. The lawyer works for the client. So I, I, I'm speaking very passionately about this because, you know, there is this thing out there. There is this, uh, I, I, I think... Um, almost like an expectation that lawyers are just non-responsive. And unfortunately, many lawyers are non-responsive. That's very, very different in our firm. We're proud of that. That communication is, in fact, what helps us build trust with our clients and, frankly, with the lawyers for the insurance companies. Mm -hmm. let, me, let me say something else here. When I used to work as a defense lawyer years and years ago, when I first started uh, practicing, uh, I remember that the insurance companies that would retain me would sometimes tell me, Sivan, listen, we want to make an offer of settlement to the claimant. Of course, I can't communicate with the claimant directly. I have to speak with their lawyer. And so I would send over a settlement proposal only to be ignored for weeks and weeks and months and months at a time. And so my point is this. If your lawyer is ignoring you, there's a pretty good chance they're ignoring the insurance company and maybe the insurance company's lawyer who is trying to actively settle your case to put money in your pocket. So you need to be very careful in a situation where you have a lawyer that's non-responsive to keep them on a tight leash. You need to communicate to them in writing that this is unacceptable. You need to arrange for a meeting. You need to set out your expectations. You need to understand why it is that the lawyer is not communicating with you and what can be done to rectify that. Hmm. And frankly, if that does not fix things, you need to think about moving. Because the reality is that if that's how they're dealing with you, that's how they're dealing with your case, which means you're going to end up with either no money or very little money compared to what you ought to receive at the end of the case. That's enough from my uh, soliloquy here, but Martin, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure you've come across this too with people coming to you on this. I have, you know, Sivan, you you almost said it all. I think that was a brilliant way of to set it out. There is an expectation when you, as a client, hire a lawyer, 
especially on this, when you're speaking about disability claims, the lady that you've described who has ongoing um, symptoms of anxiety, depression, so there's a stress situation going on. Um, many people who come to me with those types of symptoms are also upset with the insurance company because the insurance company is not responding to their questions or their phone calls or is not interacting with them or just ignoring them. And when they come to a lawyer, they're expecting the lawyer to now step in and be their voice and deal with the insurance company and communicate with them because that was one of the big issues why they came to the lawyer in the first place. And now to be in the exact same situation when you're dealing with the person who's supposed to be helping you and just supposed to be representing you with respect to your dealings with the insurance company, that obviously is not helping the situation and may even be aggravating the, uh, this lady's symptoms. So all in all, it's just bad. And yes, I've come across this as well. People have come to me saying, please, will you take over this case? Look, you cannot always respond to a person on the same day, but you cannot ignore phone calls. You cannot ignore emails, especially when you have clients who are in a vulnerable state, who are living with symptoms of anxiety and depression. You know, you, quite often, you would, not that we're counselors, but you also spend time with people speaking to them, trying to calm them down, trying to give them hope. And that's why they come to you. And that's why people come to us and they come back to us repeatedly and they refer people to us. It's because we are there to fight the fight, but we're also there to listen. Guys, do so for yourself. Don't hesitate to make that phone call, one 821 5900 and help at disabilityrights.ca. Okay, guys, uh, moving on, Savannah. we got so much to, uh, to cover. What's next, pal? Well, I, I actually want to go to a question that was posted on our website, mydisabilityquestions.com, uh, and, and get uh, Martin's thoughts on it. Uh, so this, this one comes from Marcus, and here's what he writes. says, my union has told me that if I have a problem with my LTD payments, I have to hire a lawyer. The union will not help me if there is a problem with my LTD uh, insurer. Is that true? My insurance company is not paying me properly, nor are they paying me on time. My union is doing nothing about it. And this, he says again, they suggest that I hire an LTD lawyer on my own. Now, the reason this is an interesting question is because, as our listeners know uh, from other shows that uh, other lawyers in our firm do on the employment side of things, if you're a unionized employee and you have employment issues, you have to go to your union for help. You can't go to an external lawyer. But when it comes to LTD, it's a bit different. Uh, Martin, any comments on that? You know, the first thing to say is if you do have issues with the insurance company, be it whether you're a union member or not a union member, by all means, call us because we can, you know, review the collective bargaining agreement. We can review the denial. We can review the policy. Uh, if the union isn't helping you and they're suggesting that you get a lawyer, well, then that's probably what you should be doing. There are times that we have discussions with clients to speak about what the role of the union may be in an LTD, long-term disability denial claim. But clearly in this situation, if the union is suggesting that uh, Marcus finds a lawyer and they're not responding to his questions, it just shows they're not really interested in assisting here. And maybe it isn't their role from their own perspective whether they should be assisting. And in that case, you phone us. You will phone a disability lawyer. This is what we do. This is what we do on a regular day. And, of course, the issues that Marcus seems to be experiencing with the insurance company, again, not responding, not paying him on time, or not paying him properly. I'm not quite sure what that means. Um, but 
we would be able to assist. We would be able to review the claim and the policy, as I said before. So don't don't waste time, Marcus. You've reached out at least by the email. Reach out to us, and we can give you a phone call as well. Marcus, appreciate the time and the correspondence. And as uh, Martin said, here is that number, one 855 821 and help at Lots more to go, so we'll get in and out of this break as quickly as possible and continue with more Disability Law Show. All right, welcome back. Disability Law Show. John Scholes here and alongside always Savannah Tamarkin and Martin Willems as well covering the uh, the west end of the firm in BC in that particular area. Want to reach out to any time. Number 1-855-821-5900. The email address we always go to is help at disabilityrights.ca, but there is another avenue for you to choose any time. It's anonymous and it's free. It's called MyDisabilityQuestions.com. Ask your questions there. Search to see if it's been asked before. Save you some time, right? If not, leave it there and it will get answered. MyDisabilityQuestions.com. Savannah, lots of emails and uh, correspondence again for My Disability Questions pouring in. Where do you want to go for the next one? Who do we got? Yeah, no, we got we got quite a few of them. I have one here that's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. It's not really completely clear what the person's asking, but I think we get a sense of it. Essentially, he's saying he has uh, a degenerative condition uh, in his feet and ankles, uh, which could be spreading. Also, has diabetes, and essentially, this person is asking, "Am I entitled to claim for disability? My job mm-hmm. consists of a lot of walking." Right. Uh, now let's you know uh, analyze this in the context of a long-term disability claim, um, and I say that because there are different uh, provincial disability programs out there. But we deal specifically with long-term disability, and, and you know we often get questions, and Martin, you do too. You know, I have a certain disability, an illness. I have uh, you know, and you know, uh, depression, anxiety, chronic pain. Whatever the issue is, and they say, you know, am I entitled to claim for long-term disability? And the answer is yes, if you are unable to perform the essential tasks of your own occupation. Uh, That's for the first two years under most policies. The test changes after two years. But the point is this. If you have a condition, an illness or an injury or a combination of both, and it can be psychological, it can be physical, or it can be a combination of both. And frankly, it often is. Many people, for example, who suffer from chronic pain, fibromyalgia, other types of illnesses, oftentimes also experience depression that affect their ability to work. And so at the end of the day, if you look at your LTD policy, and you can request that from your insurance company or from your HR at work, uh, if it's under a group benefits plan, if you're unable to perform those essential tasks of your employment, you should be able to qualify for LTD. Now, I say should, that doesn't mean that you're going to. In other words, insurance companies frequently deny legitimate claims, and they deny for a whole host of reasons. And that's what we do at our firm is we evaluate those denials, and we tell people, no, the insurance company is wrong, or we tell them, yeah, the insurance company is right. I can tell you in my experience, more often than not, the answer is the insurance company is wrong. And they're wrong for this reason or that reason. And when people ask us this, you know, this question, we, we have to analyze in the context of what it is that their work requires them to do with respect to their limitations, their impairments. And, and this is important, right? Because you know, if you have a sedentary type job and you have an ankle fracture, you may not be impeded or impaired from doing your job from performing the essential tasks of your occupation. But if you have depression, for example, you can't get out of bed, well, what does it matter what kind of work you do? You can't do anything. Yeah. You can't perform those, those, those functions. So 
it really is a case-by-case basis, which is why we tell people, John, that it doesn't cost anything to speak with us. Uh, and we're more than happy to, to chat with you about your case. It's free. Uh, and, and frankly, again, if you're concerned about speaking with us for whatever reason, I mean, I'm a good guy. Martin's a good guy. We're easygoing. But we'll, we'll, you know, we'll be able to help you. But if you don't want to, then email us or go on mydisabilityquestions.com or find another way that you can communicate with us. We have a lot of different channels. The key is for you to get the information you need so that you understand what your options are and what your rights are by law. Again, that number, going to keep giving it to you. It's uh, 1-855-821-5900. We thank you for your correspondence there as well. Okay, next up, pal, what do we got? We got tons. So, yeah, so so I actually just got uh, a, a, an email from somebody at my firm uh, that just – this is from Alberta. This is an individual that lives, I think, in Edmonton. And uh, it, it's an interesting scenario here, so I, I want to sort of mention the facts, and then I'd like Martin's thoughts about it. So this person – uh, is in their late 50s. I want to be very careful not to provide too much identifying information. Mm-hmm. Uh, this person is entitled to around $5,000 a month in LTD, which is significant, right? That's $60,000 a year. Uh, he's going. To, he has not been cut off LTD. He will be cut off LTD uh, at the end of June. And, and the reason is this. Uh, his doctor, his treating, he had a stroke, by the way, three years ago. So, so right. he's now suffering from the effects of the stroke, and he also has anxiety and depression because of the stroke. So you see what I'm saying, how you have the illness, uh, you have a physiological, like a physical impairment, but you also have the psychological component. Yep. Uh, and his doctor is saying, look, he's not ready to try and go back to work. But the insurance company apparently is saying, no, we disagree with your doctor. They haven't had him assessed by anybody on their end. But the adjuster seems to take exception to whatever his specialist is saying. And they're saying, no, we don't think you're right. At the end of June, you are starting a gradual return to work program. We're in touch with your employer. And guess what? If you don't comply and you don't try to go back to work, we're going to cut off your benefits. Hence why they told them at the end of June, he's going to be cut off. Either way, they're saying we're going to stop paying you because either you can go back to work and earn money there or... You're not going to try to go back to work, and we're just going to cut you off. But his doctor says, no, that's not the case. So, Martin, assuming this person came to you right now, what would you tell them? Tough situation. You know, I, I've seen a bunch of cases over the years, where, and it would be this scenario. A person had a stroke. Um, there is some recovery afterwards, but they're left with the cognitive impairment, meaning they've got difficulties concentrating, focusing, comprehending information. Um, and quite often, almost always, because of that traumatic event, there is now a diagnosis of anxiety and depression as well, which also by itself impacts the person's cognitive functioning. And if they're taking medications to deal with that, that in itself also impacts it. And, you know, the only person, other than the person who's making this claim, the, the insured, who would be able to speak about the impairment that this uh, person is living with would be the treating doctor. And I heard you use the word specialist. So if there's a specialist involved in the treatment and the care of this gentleman, and in that context, the specialist has been seeing him on a regular basis, has been seeing the improvement of any, and would be the person would be in a position to comment on what has been observed. What are the ongoing restrictions and limitations and then make a decision as to whether this person is in a position to perform a gradual or to enter into a gradual return to a program. 
that is the person who they should be listening to, and that would be the specialist. The insurance company, from the sounds of it, has not had any what is called independent medical examinations performed of this gentleman. So they're simply making a decision based on we don't we think you should be going back to work on a gradual basis. What medical professional has weighed in on this? Yeah. If they had their internal doctors review the claim, those doctors did not speak to this gentleman. They did not interview him. They did not assess him. They didn't even meet him. So on what basis would they be in a position to say that he is now ready to enter into a gradual return to work program? You see this happen so often. Normally what we would have said is have your doctor comment on this, have your doctor put in writing that you are not able to enter into a gradual return to work program and that if you did, what the consequences would be, which could very well be a setback, a relapse. But if that has already happened here, because what I heard was the doctor has advised that this doesn't, should not happen and the insurance company is still pushing ahead. What you do then is you phone us because the insurance company should, in my mind, be listening to your doctor who has the benefit of seeing you and assessing you. And they haven't done any assessments of their own. So they're not acting in a way that they should. Evidence should be evaluated on a reasonable basis, meaning that it shouldn't just be discounted. If there's a doctor who has the benefit of being in a position to make an informed opinion and you're ignoring it, your options are to call us, as I said before, because we could definitely assist through with this situation and likely this will result in a legal claim. We would go out to fight for you and get your benefits because dealing with an insurance company who is so steadfastly focused on denying a claim in the face of evidence supporting that this gentleman still remains disabled, you know, yeah. I, I, I think you need the help and you need somebody to deal with it on your behalf because dealing with them on an ongoing basis is just going to worsen your situation and your condition. Guys, number one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Reach out. It could be complex. It could be simple. You don't know until you make that phone call to Martin or Savan's teams, respectively, and uh, and get some clarity. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And so far, we've been pulling some questions from mydisabilityquestions.com as well. Savan, it's up to you. Yeah, I actually just wanted to pick up on something Martin said. Not yeah. only uh, do insurance companies find these kinds of excuses and, of course, pressures individuals out there to either try to go back to work against medical advice or just leaving them uh, exposed essentially to having no money coming in and therefore aggravating their situation. I sometimes even get, and again, Martin, I'm sure gets that too, doctors calling us, uh, doctors who I've worked with in the past, meaning that I have had communications with on behalf of patients and doctors, and by doctors, by the way, I mean psychologists, I mean MDs, specialists, chronic pain doctors, etc., chiropractors calling me saying in frustration the insurance company is not listening they're not listening and contrary to what I'm writing them we're not talking about writing like a note on a napkin saying this person's sick but providing them with very detailed reports the insurance company simply ignoring what the doctor is saying how can that be and of course I explained to them how it can be and why insurance companies do this and the arbitrary nature of many of their decisions and the flawed nature of many of their decisions. And I tell them, here's what we need to do. Here's how we help your, your, your patient uh, fight back. Sometimes it requires the doctor to write something else that I can help them with. Again, I'm not telling them what to write in terms of their opinion. I'm just expressing to them, here's how you communicate what you want to communicate to the insurance company in the language that the insurance company understands. That's number one. Or number two, if the insurance company is beyond that, meaning that they've already made their decision, 
right? The train tracks are ending. The person is falling off a cliff because their benefits are going to end. Here's what we need to do right now on behalf of your uh, patient, uh, on behalf of this individual. One more thing I want to mention. This individual that I was just mentioning here that we're talking about is told that at the end of June, his benefits will end. This often happens. In fact, when you are, you know, not when you've been receiving benefits, and at some point the insurance company says, we want to cut off your benefits, we will cut off your benefits for this reason or another reason. What people generally do is they take a wait and see approach. They either try to appeal that or they go to their doctor. Sometimes they even go to a third or, or a second or a third opinion doctors to get more letters, thinking that they can bolster their position with the insurance company thinking they can sway the insurance company into reversing course. Of course, that rarely happens. And the reason why this is important to understand is because when the insurance company tells you that in a month or two months or three months or six months, they're going to end your benefits, chances are they will end your benefits at that point. And if they are, if they are wrong to do that, if they're wrong, meaning based on the information we have right now, especially in that case where the doctor is saying, no, he cannot go back to work at the end of June, then the insurance company is in breach of their obligations under the insurance contract, which means you can start a legal claim now. And why that is important? Because they're going to end your benefits in a month, in two months, in three months. Why wait? The longer you wait, the longer you wait to get the money that's owed to you. My point is you have to be proactive. You can't simply wait and say, I hope they don't cut me off. I hope they don't cut me off because they will cut you off. And if you get the information you need right now to either try and avert the cutoff or fight them now, fight fire with fire, you're going to be in a position where you're going to have no money coming in and it's going to prolong the time that it takes you to get the money that's owed to you. So that's what I'm saying is be proactive. If you're told your benefits will end at some point in the future and, and you don't agree with that decision, you need to contact us now so we can talk to you about your case and explain to you what your options are. And here's how you do that as we get into a short break. It's one 821 5900 and help at disabilityrights.ca. More to go, lots more, so stick around. We'll continue with the Disability Law Show. Hey, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Disability Law Show continues. Savannah Tamark and their co-founding partner, Sam Firu Tamark and LLP, and Martin Willems on the, uh, the West Coast covering things out there for the firm as well. You want to reach out to either of these uh, gentlemen and their teams, one 855 821-5900-HELP at disabilityrights.ca, which is where we're going to go. Karen writes in, guys, says, uh, hello, I heard your show on the radio and have a question. My husband was on LTD for uh, two years and just had his LTD extended, and we received a letter from the insurance company asking to apply for CPP disability benefits. He was a teacher, so the insurance company is OTIP. Uh, Is this something he has to do, or is it just recommended? You know, this is a question that comes up so often, regularly. Um, We always go back to the position that the policy is a contract, right? The policy has rights and obligations and terms. And in almost every group policy, there is a provision that if the person is entitled to CPP disability benefits, um, and it normally would come up around the any occupation period, that they have to apply uh, for CPP disability benefits and potentially other benefits as well for which they may be um, approved or eligible if it is related to the same disability. So some policies even provide that if the person does not apply, then the insurance company can simply estimate that benefit and still deduct it. So the own occupation period would generally be the two-year frame 
after the waiting period where you have to prove you cannot perform the duties of your own occupation. And then when it changes to any occupation, it's at that time that we regularly see insurance companies starting to push the insured to apply for these benefits. And you can see here in this situation that the lady's husband has been on claim for two years and the claim has now been extended. What that means is the insurance company has accepted that the that her husband is disabled, at least at this time, from performing the duties of any other occupation for which he may have the transferable skills. And when you look at the definition for CPP disability benefits, it, it is you have to prove that you have a condition that is both severe and prolonged to the extent that it prevents you from engaging in any gainful occupation. That is the literal definition. I've probably said that thousands of times in my career dealing with this. But the, the, the theory behind this is if you are able to qualify for the any occupation phase, you should also be able to qualify for the Service Canada CPP disability benefit. And again, because it is a contract, the contract regularly does provide that these are offsets and there's an expectation, not a recommendation, an expectation that the insured, in this case, this lady's husband, that he applies and likely appeals if there's a denial as well. Sivan, if you've got any comments on that. I agree with you completely. It comes down to the contract. One of the things that I'll say, and I've said it time, time and time again for people, when an adjuster tells you to do something and you don't feel that it's correct or you have questions about it, there's nothing wrong with you saying to the adjuster, show me where in the policy it says I have to do that. Or where in the policy it says that you can do that insurance company. You can estimate what it is that I'm entitled to or potentially entitled to and you can reduce my monthly amounts by that amount. So in other words, don't think that just because the adjuster is telling you to do something or that the insurance company is going to do something that they're allowed to do it. You can hold their feet to the fire and you can tell them that they need to show you where in the policy it actually states that. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred is uh, the number to reach out anytime. Help at disabilityrights.ca. I want to mention as well as we get into another uh, another letter, guys. MyDisabilityQuestions.com is where you go for free answers or at least free questions about disability for either Savannah or Martin, a member of the team at the firm. It's totally anonymous and there's a searchable database as well, which makes it that much uh, easier to uh, to use. Okay, guys, we got time at least uh, for one or two more emails. I think this uh, this segment. Where do you want to go? Well, I have one here I want to I want to talk about, and in fact, okay. I want to get Martin's thoughts about. It's very interesting. This is from a lady in uh, Kelowna, in BC, and here's what she writes. I'm going to uh, not mention the insurance company name or any other identifying information. Here's what she writes. I am on the second year of my long-term disability. Um, I have signed a representation form sent to me by the insurance company for my doctor and husband to speak on my behalf due to my depression. The insurance company has just changed my adjuster to the person who originally told me that it was a conflict of interest for that person to be my adjuster because as a GM in my company, I deal with her or I dealt with her at work. I'm on medical leave right now. Despite my continued emails, uh, or sorry, the continued emails sent by my husband and myself, letting her know that she's insisting she speak with me directly, my claim is on hold. My doctor called her and she disrespected what he said when he said that he could write a detailed report and do more assessments. This adjuster said to him, to the doctor, you can send me all your notes and reports you want. It does not matter. I must speak with, with, uh, with this lady directly or this claim is on hold. And then she, oh. she finishes off by saying, I'm so upset I have lost weight. 
and I'm not sleeping from the stress, I feel this adjuster is bullying me. Really interesting. So, Martin, what, what are your thoughts about this? this is uh, here. <laughs> well, I've got a bunch of thoughts. I won't say all of them. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> unfortunately, this is a situation that we do speak about every now and again. You know, we've mentioned that not all claims that are denied, you know, are legitimate claims. And in certain instances, we don't want to say bad things about everybody. But in this situation, there is a person who suffers with depression, suffers from depression and lives with those symptoms. She has lost weight and she's not sleeping from the stress. So clearly what is happening is impacting her mental health. And the doctor has weighed in and said, look, I will write reports. I will do assessments. I can provide you whatever information you require. And yet the adjuster is insisting on speaking to this lady. So this goes back to Sivan's earlier comment with the question that we just had before. If the adjuster is insisting on something, that you do something, have them refer to you where in the policy it says and in this particular instance, that the insurance company is allowed and can insist on speaking with you directly and more so in contradiction with the recommendations of a treating physician. Exactly what the concern is, is now happening. The concern was that if she speaks to the adjuster, it will create further stress and it's in going to impact her condition. And that's what's happening here. She's lost weight. She's not sleeping. The condition clearly is worsening. I would suggest that, number one, she speaks to the doctor again. Get the doctor to put it all in writing. Suggest and lay out why it is that she cannot speak with the adjuster in person. The adjuster can put everything in an email and write to her whatever questions and put to her what questions she has. And she can respond to those questions in writing. I don't know where in the policy it says that they're entitled to speak with you in person, especially when you're dealing with a mental health case where the condition can be worsened. And it should be put to the adjuster. And if she still insists on this, you know, then we're starting to speak about bad faith issues. See Guys, you? sorry, I was just going to, before uh, Savannah, you intervene and, and comment, let's get to a short break. We're getting we're getting the, uh, the wrap it up sign from uh, from the producers. So we'll do that, get Savannah's taken the way back from that. And we'll uh, we'll get to more. In the meantime, here is that number, one 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca as well. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show. Disability Law Show, you bet. A few minutes to go. Thank you so much for uh, for contributing. If you've sent an email or used mydisabilityquestions.com, we love it. Keep them coming all the time. Uh, Savannah, I want to get back into that uh, that email. If you want to just give some uh, a brief synopsis, if you will, maybe your comments about what Martin was uh, speaking about before the break, pal. What do you think? No, absolutely. We're talking about this lady from Kelowna in BC mm-hmm. who's on her second year of uh, disability with the insurance company. She's provided a form to the insurance company that allows her husband and her doctor to speak on her behalf, to communicate with the insurance company because she suffers from depression. Uh, She's just not in the right state of mind, and so she's asked them to help her. And uh, apparently, uh, she initially had an adjuster uh, that she has known from her time at work as the GM at work, general manager, and that adjuster was switched to someone else because of that conflict. Now that initial adjuster is there, and apparently that adjuster is insisting on speaking directly with her, even though it's been expressed to that adjuster that this lady is not in the right state to be able to speak with her, that she's not doing well at all. And so she's ignoring the husband's uh, communications, and even the doctor, apparently, uh, is not being 
either respected, I think that's the word she says, she says he's being disrespected, and apparently the adjuster said to the doctor, I don't care what you write on your reports, it doesn't matter until I speak with this lady. And so she writes, I'm so upset, I have lost weight, I'm not sleeping from the stress, and I feel this adjuster is bullying me. Uh, and Martin's uh, comments were completely correct in my view in that everything comes down to the policy wording. If an adjuster says to you, I have to speak with you directly, you tell the adjuster, where does it say that in the policy you have to speak with me directly? Now, the adjuster may say, well, it doesn't say that, but that's my right. No, it doesn't work like that. This is a contractual relationship. The contract governs. Here's what I would do, though. Here's my advice to this lady. My, and whether it's this lady who writes it, because I think she was communicating by email. This adjuster wants to speak with her by phone. Uh, here's what I would do. I would put everything in writing. I would email the adjuster, you know, recounting what's been happening, very factually. Do not use adjectives. And be very thorough in your email, um, to, you know, to this lady, to this adjuster. Explain what's been happening. Confirm that, in fact, your husband and your doctor have authority to speak on your behalf. Confirm that you are suffering from a mental health issue and it's aggravating you. And significantly, uh, it, it's creating a situation where you are just, you know, in a much worse state. Uh, and by the way, continue speaking to your doctor about this so that it's in that doctor's clinical notes and records. And put that to the adjuster and say, look, I cannot speak with you. I can perhaps, you know, perhaps communicate with you in writing. Uh, my husband, you know, can, can communicate with you. Make sure it's in writing. And the reason I say this is because if despite all that, despite putting this in writing, the adjuster comes back and says, I don't care. I'm going to cut off your benefits or put them on hold because you are not doing what I am demanding that you do, even though they have no right to demand that because it's not in the policy. It doesn't, you know, allow them to demand that. At that point, we can t we can take legal action against the insurance company. And, and frankly, as, as as Martin mentioned, I think this would be a case potentially for bad faith. What does that mean? It means that we would go after the insurance company not only for the benefits that this lady is owed monthly, but for what's called extra contractual damages, punitive damages, which are additional monies to punish the insurance company's conduct, this adjuster's conduct. This is completely inappropriate, and I can only imagine if this adjuster is doing it to this person, she's probably doing it to other individuals. Yep. And think about this, John. Why would she be doing this? She knows that it's making the situation worse for this person who's dealing with a severe depression. The only reason, the only reason I can think of that she's pressing is because she's hoping that this will force this lady to give up on her benefits, to just walk away from her claim. I can't imagine that there's any other reason. Why would you do this? You know, it's such a so, frustrating so me, situation. Go, go ahead. I, I, like, I feel very strongly about this, uh, Mark. I mean, I'm sorry to cut you off. It's just, it, it is, I do believe that it's bullying. I believe that it's it's acting in a high-handed manner. And I think that if the managers up in the insurance company were aware of this and, and would have known that this adjuster is exposing them to punitive damages, they would have had a word with her, I think. I agree with exactly with what you just said. I was just going to add, you know, the role of the insurance company, and they know this, is to support the person and pay them benefits while they remain totally disabled from working. What that means is that they are unable to perform the essential duties of their occupation due to an illness. It is not to aggravate the situation. It's not to create a situation where the person's condition is actually worsening. And that's what's happening here. In the context of these policies being what we describe as peace of mind policies, meaning that you buy these policies if something were to happen with your health, that you have to have the financial support in order to get along in your life 
and to follow and pay for treatments that could get you back to work. In this situation, this insurance company, in the context of a peace of mind policy, is creating an aggravation and is worsening this latest condition. And as Stephen says, you know, he feels very strongly, it is absolutely infuriating listening to this situation. And always, always reach out for further, uh, further conversation for sure. Got a couple minutes to go, Savan. Take it on home, pal. What do you think? Uh, well, you know, it's this is a theme that I think we've talked about uh, quite a lot, Martin and I, and, and other lawyers at our firm, which is that insurance companies will often do things and say things to claimants, hoping that claimants will simply take them, that that they will listen, that you know they will comply obediently. And it's really important people understand that they have a lot more power than they think they do. In other words, it's an illusion, it's a mirage that the insurance company is omnipotent, that somehow because they have billions of dollars in their bank accounts and they have armies of lawyers, that somehow they're just going to you know, be able to do whatever they want. They can't, they can't. These insurance companies are not above the law. And you need to understand that as a claimant, there's actually what's called a fiduciary duty that the insurance company owes you, meaning they have to treat you with respect, they have to make sure that they abide by the terms of the policy. And you know, Martin mentioned something which is worth repeating. Insurance policies, whether it's a disability policy, a house insurance policy, a car insurance policy, a travel insurance policy, any policy like that, these are policies for peace of mind. It's not us saying it, it's courts, it's judges across the country saying that. So when an insurance company bullies you and harasses you and acts in a way that they should not, they are breaching that peace of mind policy. And they've been hammered time and time again by judges across the country. So if you're in that situation, if you know someone in that situation, if you need any help whatsoever, again, remember, contact us. doesn't cost anything to speak with us and get the advice you need. Guys, always a good show, always informative. People need to tune in more often, and if not, uh, relay whatever uh, their issues are through a phone call or an email. Here's how you do that. As we uh, wrap for another day, and that is 1-855-821-5900, right? 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. And that website we've also uh, pulled from a few times on the show today, mydisabilityquestions.com, searchable. It's a great database there, or you can add to it with your questions, and they'll get answered promptly, mydisabilityquestions.com. That'll do it for another show, Disability Law Show. We'll catch you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.